Well, good morning, Greece campus, church family. I want to welcome all the other campuses as well as our online viewers. Uh, if you're new, my name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're in part three of our current message series called Faithful. We're looking at the book of James and how to live a life of faith. Hopefully you've been reading your Bible, learning more about what James says, and growing in your faith. And uh, we're going to get into it this morning. Before we do, though, I have like uh, an important thing we need to do if all of our campus pastors can uh, participate and all of our campuses can indulge us. Sorry, Pastor Levi, I didn't want to catch you off guard. Get up here with your camera. We do need to take a picture of our church, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to raise your hand in just a few moments if you are planning to attend the, uh, the Together Day at Houghton College, as you saw on the Need to Know. Not, not yet. Um, if you weren't in here when the announcement came on the screen, on July 31st, the last Sunday of the month, we are going to be meeting not here, not at your campus, but at Houghton College. And once a year, we gather together under one roof to uh, praise our great God's name and to fellowship together, to have fun together. So there's going to be a lot of games and bounce houses for the kids and free food. Can I get an amen? It's going to be great and uh, a great service as well. So if you're new to Crosstown, if you've never been to one of those services, have they? These, Greece, Greece has never, all of you guys, all right. Or the other campuses, if you've never been to one, I would really, really encourage you to be at the service. In fact, everybody, if you call Crosstown your home and you're in town and can make that drive, we'd really encourage you to be at Houghton College on July 31st. So how's that for a guilt trip? So with all, on the count of three with a show of hands, uh, if you are planning to attend, uh, this would help us take some inventory of who to expect and how to plan for that day. Uh, do me a favor, on the count of three, go ahead and sh uh, shoot up your hand uh, if you're planning on 10. One, two, three. Leave them up there so we can take a few pictures. Leave them up there. I've got a question, right? You got it? Campus pastors, hopefully you got it. There we go. All right. That's a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to James chapter 1. We spent a few weeks here in James chapter 1 because he's talking a lot about what we need to learn. I'm going to give you a quick recap of what we've been learning uh, through James. Uh, James is really telling us that all of us go through trials at some point in our life. We're all under a trial. We need to trust God through that trial because trials are meant to draw us closer to God. But sometimes trials can actually drive a wedge between us and God. And so James wants you to understand that trials are meant to draw you closer, not to get you to grow bitter towards God. And the reason why we can take that approach is because we know that through that hardship, through that difficulty in our life, God is actually accomplishing something for us, like for us, and it's for our good, which is why James says in James chapter 1, to let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it have its full effect when you're tested so that you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you need to understand that that trial is actually serving a greater purpose for your good. Now, for us to have that perspective, it takes great wisdom, which is what we talked about last week. Since so the last week, wisdom is the bridge, the middle between your trial and joy. It'll, wisdom is, allows you to have the right theology of trials, to see things from God's perspective. 
so that when you go into that trial, you're able to take something out of the trial so that you look more like Jesus. And so James, in his simplistic form, I love how he just keeps it simply, says, ask. If you're in a situation and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to handle it, you don't know what God's doing, you have those why questions, and you're not able to discern what do you want me to get from it, ask God for wisdom. And what does the Bible say? It says that he will give generously to all without reproach or without finding fault. But when you ask, here's the key, remember last week, when you ask, don't be like a wave that is tossed in the sea. What does he mean? He says, don't be a double-minded man. Don't be someone who's wishy-washy. Remember the illustration I gave you last week? Don't be like my kids who have one foot on the pool deck and, and one foot reaching out to their father. If you want to go deeper in your relationship with God, you can't have one foot on the pool deck and one foot reaching out to God. You can't be double-minded, wishy-washy. You can't do that. You've got to be stable. Be stable. Be like Peter, walking on water for a brief moment, keeping his eyes on Jesus. And then James says, he wants us to know that every trial is ultimately for our good. And the reason why it's for our good is, remember I said Romans eight twenty nine, for we are made to be conformed into the image of Christ. We are made to be formed into the image of Christ. That is what trials are. So take everything that we've learned. Here's the one common thread. It requires us to trust that our Heavenly Father knows best. Because everything I just explained and described, there's going to be something in you that kind of pushes back on it, and you won't understand why you're going through what you're going through, but at the end of the day, you need to understand, you need to know that your Heavenly Father knows best. Now, parents, if you have kids, you can understand this, this, uh, this, this tension because as a parent, you know that you know what's best. You know that you know more than your kid. They don't know that, Right? But you know that. The kids don't really know that much. You know more than your kid. And because you know more than your kid, you're able to help them with their perspective. But in any parent-child relationship, you understand that when they don't get what they want and they don't see things from your perspective, they actually can complain, whine, cry, and get mad. And that's exactly what James is going to teach us in this next section of James chapter one. So as I was thinking about this, I came across some funny um, memes. This was, these are some of the top 100 reasons why kids cry or complain, or, or throw a fit, and their parents are trying to give them the, the better perspective, okay? So this is the first one. I told her Darth Vader was the bad guy, right? <laughs> Poor little girl. Or how about this next one? He doesn't want to go, even though, parents, can you relate to this? Even though we've repeatedly told him we're not going anywhere. Just doesn't make any sense. Or how about this next one? Someone, someone ate all the muffins, it was him. It was him. <laughs> or, uh, this is one of my favorites. The face of someone whose mom wouldn't let him hold his own poop in his hands. That had to have happened to someone in this room. Or how about this one? I wouldn't let him eat the rest of the football, the foam football. And this is one of my favorites. I wouldn't let him finish eating the dirt. Look at this face. Aw. Everybody say aw. He wasn't allowed to electrocute himself. Come on, Mom. Come on, Dad. Let me electrocute myself. It, it's funny, but it's not too far removed how we sometimes respond to God when we don't get what we want, when life doesn't go our way. 
We cannot see things from God's perspective. We might say things like this, God, you don't care about me. It doesn't feel like it. I might know it here, but it doesn't feel like you care about me. Or we might say, if you loved me, then you would have answered that prayer. After all, isn't there a Bible verse that says, God will give me the desires of my heart. And we rip that totally out of its context and doesn't have any meaning. Or maybe this one, if you truly cared, God, you would have, and then fill in your own blank. If you truly cared, God, you would have given me that promotion. You would have given me that job. And God's looking at that situation and saying, no, no, no. If I gave you that job, you'd be away from your family. You wouldn't be able to do the things that God has called you to do. Or if I gave you that promotion, it would get to your head and you'd make an idol out of it. Or if I gave you that fill in the blank, that, that mate, God knows the future. Maybe he's keeping you from that person so that it doesn't lead to destruction. See, we, we have a plan for our life. And yet when we fail to release that plan to God's plan, we, we kind of make mistakes over and over again. The question that we need to ask ourselves essentially is this. Do you really believe your heavenly father knows best? That's what it really comes down to. You have a heavenly father who loves and cares for you. You know that from his word. But do you really believe that he knows best and that his plan for your future is best? Will you trust him? Or will you do what Proverbs 19 talks about. You remember I told you James is really influenced a lot by the book of Proverbs. Look what it says. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. That sound familiar? Especially with the pictures that we looked at? God, why won't you elect, let me electrocute myself? We rage against God. We blame God. We blame other people. We blame our situations. We blame a whole bunch of other things rather than taking ownership of what we're responsible for. So here's what James is going to teach us. There is a tendency under trial, when we face trials and we're under the hardship, to blame God for what we're going through. And James has a lot to say about that today. So James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. If you have your Bible, read with me or you can follow along on the screen. Here's what it says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. That's the, the basic issue of what we're talking about today. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We're going to talk about that. Then desire, when it has conceived, give birth, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect, every per, good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is warning us not to blame God, but to take ownership. When we mess up, fess up, take ownership of what we've done and not cast the blame onto other people. This sound familiar? This is all throughout the Bible. In fact, we're going to kind of take a journey I want to trace this thought through the Bible and, and show you what you're like and how you got to be how you're like what you're like, okay? So here's what Genesis chapter 3 talks about. 
Genesis 3, the setup here is uh, Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve. They're in paradise. It's a perfect place. There is no sin. They're in perfect fellowship with God. And God says to them, you can eat from any tree in the garden, any tree that you want, except for one tree. And like a kid, where you tell them you can't eat that cookie, you can have all these other cookies, what cookie do you think they're going to eat? That cookie, right? And so they eat of the tree. And this perfect communion with God is lost because of their disobedience. This is where we pick up the story. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now when you read that, the implication is that this was a daily thing that that would take place. We we weren't there. None of us were there. But we kind of get this picture that Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship and harmony with God. and, And God would visit them. They would have communion with God. There was no break in the relationship until this day when they took of the forbidden fruit. And the man and his wife hid themselves. Why do they hide themselves? Because they're afraid. That's what, that's what sin does. It, it produces shame and fear in us. We, we saw last week that, that perfect love casts out fear. That's why Christ came. But in that sense, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then look what it says. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This this sets off a list of questions that God gives to Adam and Eve. There's four questions I want you to take note of. And at any point, at any point in the conversation, when God shows up and they have this fear, this this conviction, right, This, this, this shame that's on their soul, at any point Adam could have stepped up and said, I've messed up. It's my fault. And so why does God ask all these questions? Because he doesn't know? No, he knows. He's giving Adam and Eve ample opportunity to fess up rather than cast blame onto other people or other situations. Is that what they do? No. We're going to see what happens. Where where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Question two. Question three. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Does God already know? God already knows. Verse 13. Rather than take ownership, this is what Adam does. In the moment, he thinks this is a good plan. The man said, the woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. It's the woman's fault. Good plan, Adam. I'm sure this went really well, by the way, later on that night. I'm sure that there's just a lot of peace in the home. But what I want you to notice is that Adam, he's not just blaming the woman. More specifically, Adam's blaming God. Because who created the woman? See, this is Adam's way of saying, you thought you were bringing this into my life because this is what I needed, but you really didn't know what I needed. This is Adam's way of questioning whether or not God knows what he's doing, cares about his creation, including him, and has his best interest at heart. And Adam's answer is no. It was the woman that you created. I didn't ask for her. You gave gave her to me. Now, Eve's not any better. Eve, when questioned, verse 14 I'm sorry, verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. Again, she could have stepped up and fessed up. 
She could have taken ownership of what she's done, but instead of doing that, she blame shifts to the serpent. It's the serpent's fault. In actuality, it's really God's fault because who created the serpent? God. God, you didn't know what you are doing. It's my environment. It's my situation. It's anything but me. Rather than taking ownership of their own sin, they cast the blame onto other people. It's what we love to do as well. That's why James says these words in verse 16. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived like Adam and Eve. Don't, don't blame God to get yourself off the hook. Take ownership of what you've done. Because here's the big idea. In every single trial, remember the context of this is trials. In every single hardship that you go through, you can either grow closer to God, become more like Jesus, or you can be led into temptation. And there's all kinds of temptation when you go down that path. When you're in a hardship, when you're in a financial temptation, for example, rather than remember what Jesus says, that God cares for the sparrows, he cares for the number of hairs or lack thereof on your head, for some of you, he knows what you're going through, and if you will seek him first, Matthew 6.33, he will give all these things to you as well. He will provide for your needs. You will never be short because God is a good giver. Rather than remembering that, when you're going through financial hardship, you'll question whether or not God cares for you. That if God remembers you, or maybe when you lose a loved one earlier than you expected, earlier than what you wanted to, you'll question whether or not God is really in control. Is God really that good? You see how trials have a way to, to weigh down on us so much that rather than drawing closer to God, we grow bitter to God, we question God, we question his goodness. This is the temptation that James is warning us about, and it's a temptation that's seen since the beginning. Here's another example of why we are the way we are. And, and uh, another example from the Bible, the story of Exodus. You remember the story where Moses gets the Ten Commandments? We all probably remember that story. But there's a unique subplot to this story that maybe you were not aware of. Exodus 32. Um, the context is Moses is on the mountain, Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments. He's taking a little bit longer than the people expect. Uh, he leaves his brother Aaron in charge of the people. And when he comes down to Aaron, it's utter chaos. Let me, let me explain. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not have an idea of where he is. <laughs> He's taking way too long up there with God. And rather than wait on God's timing, we're going to take matters into our own hands. So get up, Aaron. Make for us some gods that we can worship and trust in. So Aaron said to them, that is a bad idea. We should not do that. We're going to follow the Lord our God. Is that what he said? I don't think so. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of, the, of gold that, that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And, catch this, he received the gold. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
Not good, Aaron. Not good. And it gets worse. Rather than taking ownership of what he's done, he does what so many of us do, which is blame shift. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a sin upon them? I have this picture in my mind of Moses, you know, coming down, seeing this chaos, looking at Aaron, seeing the sin of the people and thinking, golly, Aaron, they must have like kidnapped you. They must have held you at gunpoint. Like, what did these people do to you? How did this happen? And Moses, Moses, and Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. What's Aaron's response? You know the, you, you know the people, right? That's how we respond too. You, you know how my kids are. You know her. You know the people. In other words, it's not me, it's not me, Moses. It's the people. You left me in charge with the people, right? Don't blame me, blame the people. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where he is, has what, what has become of him. And so I said to them, Let any, this is Aaron, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. Now, is this how the story goes? They gave it to me. They gave it to me. What does the Bible actually say? What did, what did we just read a few verses prior? He, re, he received, right? They gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out popped this calf. That's what happened. No. No. You received it, and you fashioned it. You you engraved it. You, you had a tool. You formed the calf. And then you put it in the fire. And then you had the audacity, Aaron, to say, these are your gods. Worship them. For they brought you out of the land of Egypt. At any point in this conversation, Aaron should have said, could have said, I messed up. What did you do? It's the people. I mean, I just, I just took what they gave me and just, up, pop the calf, right? Like, no, no, this was you. This was you, Aaron. This is what we do, church. We love to blame other people. Does this sound familiar? We love to blame other people when we mess up. It's so convenient. We love to judge other people and justify ourselves. Rather than take ownership, it's the person's fault, it's our circumstances' fault, it was how I was made, it's our situation that, I, that we're in. And, and we've even popularized the phrase, the devil made me do it. Listen, here's what you need to learn. The devil didn't make you do anything. Most of you have never had an experience with the devil. He's not omnipresent like God. There's something greater that is working in you. If you were on a desert island and Satan could not get to you because he can't swim, I don't know, and it's just you, guess what? You still sin. You're still tempted and you still sin. If, if Satan never tempted you again, you will still fall into temptation because the problem is not God, it's not other people, it's not circumstances. Here's the problem. The problem is you. The problem is me. 
James says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Satan might set the trap, but your desire is what drawing you to the trap. Satan might bait the hook, but it's your desire, your evil, sinful desire that was, that was handed down by Adam and Eve that draws you to that hook. And this is not just our experience. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians in all of, uh, of Christianity, planted a whole bunch of churches and wrote much of your New Testament. He had the same experience with the sin that was inside of him. You remember this, uh, this passage from Romans chapter 7. He says, so I find it to be a law, which you think about a law. A law is like, you know, it can't change. It's the law of nature. is something that, that shapes you. You don't shape it. It's a law. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. You say, Paul, how close? This is how close it lies close at hand. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's Paul's experience. Remember this? I want to do good, but the good that I want to do, I can't do all the time. And that which I don't want to do that I keep on doing. Raise your hand at all of our campuses if you've ever experienced that. The rest of you are liars. That's us. Here's Paul's response. Knowing that and having, you can't get out of that until the other side of the grave. His response is this. What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? What a wretched people we are, knowing the good we need to do, but we, we can't do it all the time because there's something inside of us that, that lures us to something that's going to ruin us. So let, let's get really practical how this actually works because James talks about this in, in the passage, about the process of temptation, how, how sin um, breeds itself in, in our life. So the first thing that we see is uh, deception. This is, this is really the work of the enemy. The enemy wants to um, deceive you, lie to you. Um, he wants to come into your life and to make sin more attractive than it is, to make sin more attractive than purity, holiness, and righteousness in your life. Um, this, is, this is where he wants you to get the, to, to doubt the goodness of God. Because if you think about it, every sin that you've ever committed really came down to, in that moment, you doubting how good God was. He wants you to cause some disbelief in God's goodness and who he is. He's not really primarily concerned about you hating God. He just wants you to doubt his goodness. He wants you to remember or or forget how good God has been in your life. He wants you to question whether or not God has a good plan for your life and that he knows what he's doing. So Genesis 3.1, the beginning of the fall, what does he say to Eve? What did he say to Eve? Did God really say that you can't eat from the trees? No. It's not what God said. But Satan twists God's words and he gets them and Eve specifically to believe that God was holding out on her. Does God really have your best interest at heart? Does God really, is he really looking out for what's best for you? That seed of doubt. And what happens is she's deceived. And what happens is we're deceived. 
when we begin to doubt the goodness of God. That leads to like this emotional response when we see things. It's called attraction. Uh, attraction is when we're drawn to things that we see and we have an emotional response. Oh, wow, that looks good. I really look good in that dress. I would really look good in that car. Man, I think I, I'm a little down today. I need a little bit more, of, more drink. I, there's all kinds of temptations out there. It wouldn't be a temptation if it wasn't attractive, right? Uh, fishermen, you know this. You, you have to hide the hook, right? When you're fishing, you have to hide the hook because no one's attracted. The fish aren't attracted to a metal object that's going to like poke a thing through their, their, their face. You wouldn't be either. So you hide the hook with something that's, you know, reflective and beautiful and attractive. That's something that's going to lure you in. This is the stage where we begin to literally want something that will literally destroy us. We begin to want something that in the end will eventually kill us. And we think about it long enough. We ponder it long enough. We actually rationalize it in our minds long enough. We, we, we are even silly enough to say, well, God gave me those passions. God put me in this situation. If he didn't want me to succumb to this temptation, then why would I be in this, this environment? We rationalize it, and it leads to the next thing, which is disobedience. Disobedience is the act. It's the biting of the hook. It's where, you, it's where this outward external attraction dominates your internal conviction or your internal knowledge of who God is. It's not that you like totally, you, you don't become an atheist in that moment, right? But you forget. You forget how good God is. You forget God's purpose for your life. And in that moment, something that is going to kill you dominates your reasoning. And it dominates your motivation. And it, becomes your, it actually becomes your greatest desire rather than God. So you disobey. And what's the next process? Where does that lead? Death. Sin promises pleasure and always results in pain. You can have fun doing sin for a while. But in the end, it's always going to lead to death. Satan loves to lie to you, thinking that if you keep doing what you're doing and going down the path that you're going on, and I don't need, really need to give anything specific to you. I think the Holy Spirit can speak to you internally of what you're going through and what you're dealing with. But if you keep going down that path, church, it will ultimately lead to the same destination, which is death. Um, David's a great example of this, right? David, the king of Israel, Israel's at war. He should have been on the front lines with the troops, but instead of being with the troops in battle, where's David? You know the story of Bathsheba? It's David and Bathsheba. He's on the rooftop. He's somewhere where he doesn't belong. He shouldn't be. And he sees. He sees something. He sees a beautiful woman bathing. And so he inquires of Bathsheba. He sends for Bathsheba. You know where that leads to? Death. People die in that story. In the Bible, it's not just physical death that, that God's warning us of. It's a spiritual death. It's Adam and Eve one day walking with God in close fellowship and the next day being cast out of paradise. Completely separated from a perfect relationship with God. That's what sin does in our life. So James is saying to the church under trial, 
hoping they respond to trial to become more like Jesus, but knowing full well that in every trial there's a temptation to walk away from Jesus. And he's saying to all of us, we have to be aware of this. We have to be aware of deception, attraction, disobedience, death, because we do not want to come to the point of sin. We want to honor God, which is... Levi's going to talk about this next week, but I wanted to mention the very next verse. This is all in the same context, all in chapter, all in chapter 1. The very next verse, I think there's a really significant connection to what we're talking about in regards to trials and temptations that I wanted to mention it. This is what he says. He says, know this. So imagine like I'm preaching for a while and some of you are tar- starting to tune out. But then all of a sudden I get really animated and I say, listen, listen. Know this. The next words of my mouth, out of my mouth, are going to be really important, right? That's what James is doing, not verbally, but in written form through this letter. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be, you know this verse? This is my, one of my life verses, right? And I always treat it in the sense that I don't want to be an angry person. So this is the, the verse i got to memorize. But there's a greater context to this verse. And the context is what we've been talking about. He says, know this, in light of everything we talked about, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now think about that. When you're in a trial, and life is hard, and you're dealing with difficulty, and circumstances are out of your control, and you're kind of being tempted to question whether or not God's plan is good, and he's always for your good, to be conformed to his image, what are you prone to do? Are you prone to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Or are you like me when you're going through a trial and you're slow to hear other people and their wisdom that they have to give to you? And you're, you're quick to speak and give your opinion of why you're going through what you're going through and maybe what God's doing in your life. And you're quick to anger because you don't understand why you're going through what you're going through. You see the connection that James is Making, he's telling you to, shh, quiet, listen, and don't blame God. God is not responsible for you being tempted. And when you're consistently trying to cast the blame onto other people rather than own your own sin, you will never get to the point of overcoming temptation. Does that make sense? So here's, here's the application. I was thinking about this week of some practical things that I could share with you that would help you uh, overcome temptation. If you're a senior saint, you've heard the sermon before. You've probably, if you've heard it, you've done it, and praise God for that. But I think everybody needs to know some of these practical tools that the Bible speaks of. Before I give them to you, I need to kind of cast an overarching umbrella to every single one of these applications. They are fruitless, if you're not walking with God. They're good application, but unless God is working in your heart, unless you're a branch connected to the vine, you will bear no fruit. John 15, 5. Unless you're staying in step with the Spirit, you will not produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You won't. So The foundation of what we're talking about today is you have to be with God. Because at the end of the day, when you face temptation, if you answer that door, you will sin. If Jesus answers the door, temptation flees. It's his power within you. Okay? So here's the first one. Be familiar with what easily entangles you. Here's the truth. What tempts you doesn't tempt the other person. 
um, what's in that trap might not be appealing to you, but it could be to another person. What's on that hook might be tempting to you, but it might not affect me. And I need to know the difference. I need to know, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, to cast off every sin that so easily entangles me. Do you know the sin that so easily entangles you? Is it overspending? Is it consumerism? Is it materialism? Then take the app off your phone that allows you so easy access to purchase those things. Put your credit card in a block of ice, I've heard it said before by Dave Ramsey, and stick it in your freezer so that you think 100 times before you spend it, right? If, if, if it's alcohol, don't go into a bar. If it's pornography, stay off the internet. Get away from that. Have an accountability partner. Whatever it is, know the thing that so easily entangles you and deal with it. Here's the next one. Number two, think of the consequences. Um, I would maybe go a step further. Not only think about them, but write them out. What would happen if you did take a bite? Dads, husbands, what would happen if you took a bite? Ladies, what would happen if you took a bite? Like, literally, fast forward the tape. You don't have to go there and do it. Fast forward the tape in your mind. Play the situation out. That's not as tempting as the actual bait. Like, if you're a fish, the worm looks really juicy. And it looks really, really good. Before you take a bite of that worm, though, maybe consider the future where you're on a cutting board and the guy's got a knife slitting your throat. Might be good advice, right? Think about the consequences. Where does this sin and temptation lead? Here's number three. Yeah, thank you, John. Memorize some victory verses. Memorize scripture. What does scripture say about itself? Hide. I want to hide God's word in my heart so that I will not sin against you, God. And so every Christian, you, you need some victory verses. You need some verses to memorize. Um, I've got a few. If you don't have any, let me, give you a, let me give you a few options, a few examples. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul's talking about this idea of temptation. And he says this. This is something that we should always keep in mind when we're facing temptation so that we know that there is a way of escape and that what we're facing should not or would not be able to crush us. So no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. When it feels too hard to, for you to continue and to keep fighting, that's your victory verse. Memorize it. God always provides a way of escape. It is not too difficult. God is faithful, and he's calling you to remain faithful. Here's another one from James. James 1, uh, James 1, 1, uh, 1 and 2. Count, or 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, you know something, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Keep going, right? So that you may be perfect and complete. I'm going through what I'm going through, not because God hates me or doesn't love me, but because he's doing something in me. Remind yourself of that. Have that victory verse. Or in Philippians, those of you who are worrying uh, people, anxious people, always worrying about what's next, 
Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And here's what happens. This is the promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many of you need to have that in your back pocket so that when worry and fear creep into your mind, you've got something to fight the battle with? And God gives it to us. And there's so many more that we can memorize. But this is how we fight against the enemy and against our own evil desires. So here's number four. Remember the goodness of God. And I think this is probably one of the biggest applications that we can take away from this message. Again, Satan's tactic is not for you to shout profanities at God and, you know, just hate God. He wants you to forget God. He wants you to forget how good God has been, which is why James, in this passage, you remember, says that every good and perfect gift comes down from where? Look at this verse, verse 17. Comes down from where? The father of lights. That title was a Hebrew term that they would give to God. It meant creator God because they believed that God created the heavens and the earth. The father of lights. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. The sun, if you don't know, is going to be here today and gone tonight. It changes. Its shadows change. It varies. But the one constant in your life is a God who loves you, cares for you, and is always raining down good gifts and perfect gifts from above. You can never forget that. You can never forget that. God is faithful in the past. He's faithful now currently, whether you realize it or not, and he will be faithful in the future. And then James, as if that wasn't good enough, the good gifts that he gives, he brings us back to the remembrance of our own salvation. He says, of his own will. In other words, he says, by his own decision. By his own decision, he brought us forth. By his own will, God decided in your life that while you were hell-bent on doing your own thing in life, while you wanted nothing to do with God, while you were literally an enemy of God, he decided to save you, to cause you to be born again, to become sort of a, a first fruits of his creature, creation. He owns you. That's what a, a firstborn son was. They took on the identity and the name of the father. The firstborn crop or the first, first fruit crop or the animal, that, was, that belonged to the Lord. And so what James is telling us to do is remember who you are. When you sin and you fall, don't think that you're identified by your sin. You're identified by your relationship with Jesus. And he is a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children. And so the implication is, if God is so good and his gifts are so pure and perfect and he's been so faithful and merciful to your life, why would you ever want to pursue anything but him? The image that I have is a fish and his father. The father has given a treasure full of worms, but yet the fish leaves the treasure to go pursue the surface where he's going to get killed. Why would we ever leave all the food that the Father has given us to pursue a trap? It just doesn't make sense when you remember how good God has been. And then, number five, view the present in light of the future. View today and all the struggles you're going with and all the hardships and that tempting situation which you think is going to give you pleasure and you're not thinking far enough ahead. View that day, that that situation in light of what's to come. 
This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26. He says he considered it. He's talking about Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And here's the reason why. For he was looking to the reward. He was looking to what's ahead. And because he had his focus on what is ahead, he could deal appropriately with what he was currently under. Um, If you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph uh, has these dreams that his brothers were going to bow down to him. They get a little jealous. They throw him into a pit, which all good brothers do, and they sell him into slavery, right? He's sold into slavery. He's bought by a guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife is coming on to Joseph a little too hot and heavy, and he gets himself into a tempting situation. Joseph was well-built and handsome, the Bible says, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. You see the, the parallel between Joseph and God there. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Does that sound familiar? You can eat from any tree except one. Withheld withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So here's the question. It's a very good application for us to consider. How was Joseph able to resist temptation? The answer is he had his view of a good God. He was able to overcome temptation because he had God as his greatest desire. If you, if you walk away from this message and you think that, boy, I'm kind of messing up here. I need to do better and I need to change some behaviors in my life. You've gotten the wrong message. If all you're taking from this message is I need to try harder, implement some strategies that Pastor Jeremy gave to me, and I'll have some better behavior, you have totally missed James's point. Because at the end of the day, you're still going to be led astray by your own evil desire. It's in you until the day you die. And so the way that you overcome that evil desire is by replacing it with a greater desire. The way that Joseph was able to overcome this temptation is because his desire was to not sin against God. He viewed today in light of when he would stand before God and have to give an account for what he's done in this life. And every single one of us are going to have to do that. Live today and tomorrow and next week in every situation that you find yourself that is tempting in light of the fact that we get to stand before God, not to be judged whether or not we go to hell. That is secure in Jesus Christ if you're a believer in him. But you want him to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And when you have that vision of what's to come now, that makes all the difference in your life. And if you've messed up, which all of us have, but if you're messing up and you've just sinned this morning or you've just sinned this week and you're just so full of shame right now because of what you've done, here's here's my message for you. There's still hope. There's hope in Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess with our mouth, wrong verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is a good God who does forgive his children. Your identity is not in your sin. It is in Jesus. But you got to stop blame shifting. you got to stop blaming other people. 
you got to fess up and own up to what you're doing and what God has called you to do. Then, and only then, will you be able to overcome temptation. I want to invite our worship teams to come forward as uh, we close in uh, worship and, and prayer. Let's thank God for his word. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder uh, that temptation is real and it often comes through the source of trials in our life. That in every single trial or hardship that we go through, Lord, you're reminding us that there is a tendency to blame you. There is a tendency to go away from you, to grow bitter towards you, to cast blame on other people or other situations, not realizing what needs to happen is that our flesh, our, our flesh, our evil desires that are against you need to be crucified, need to be, be handed over and repented of. And so I pray that by your spirit, more and more we would learn to fully surrender to you, know that there's a way of escape, know that you are greater and you have uh, a greater desire for us, that your desire is for us to desire you more than anything, Lord. And so I ask that you would birth that into our hearts, help us overcome sin to become more and more like you. You give us life, sin leads to death. Why would we ever look to anyone or anything else as a result of what you've provided for us? We love you, Jesus. Pray that you would transform us into your image. And it's in your name we ask this. Amen.